The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. This morning, we have a special guest, Darcy Winslow, who's the founder of the DSW Collective, Designs for a Sustainable World. Darcy is a pioneer and active practitioner of sustainability frameworks. She's had a long-time career at Nike Corporation, which is an interesting story in itself, and I hope to get into that a little bit, Darcy. Well, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much, Cheryl. It's great to have you here. And to uh, finally meet you, even if it is over the airwaves, through our common friend and guide, John Milton. Yeah. Oh, aren't we lucky? So, Darcy, where are you today? I am in sunny Portland, Oregon. It truly is sunny out here, not a cloud in the sky and snow on the mountains off oh. the distance. Oh, nice. Very nice. Well, it's uh, I'm in San Francisco, and it is equally sunny. I think the West Coast is having a bit of a reprieve from some of the recent storms. And, um, boy, there's nothing like the West Coast when the blue skies and sun is shining, huh? It is. There's not another place I'd rather live. Mm. Well, and place matters to you. Um, I know that you have spent a lot of time as an athlete and connected to the outdoors. And so my guess is um, living in the Northwest is very important to you. Is that right? It is. There are so many different environments that are accessible and available to us every day, and I would say if you're a fair-weather athlete, this may not be the place for you. <laughs> uh, so you have to like to run in the rain? Is that? <laughs> oh, I will run in anything. Uh-huh. I won't bike in anything, but adversity in the weather just adds another element to the experience of whatever it is you're doing. That's great. Well, now, you are, from what I've heard and what I read, you, you're a lifetime athlete. You started pretty young in, into athletics. Is that right? I did. I started dancing when I was three years old, and oh. that in some ways didn't stick, but it did come around later in life. Um, we can talk about that. But I started swimming when I was five years old and was a competitive swimmer up until about 17 at which time I started coaching uh, Amateur Athletics Union or USS Swimming, and uh, that has always been a lifelong sport. But several years ago, several years ago, I won't say how many, (laughs) I made a commitment to try a new sport every year, and that was in part to challenge myself physically and also mentally. 
And so right now I'm just one sport behind my age and looking for that new sport this year. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I've never anybody, heard anybody quite say it that way. One sport behind your age. <laughs> you know, like, okay. Well, they, uh, you've been pretty busy. <laughs> yeah. And then also from another perspective is opportunities arise all the time to go do something, whether it's, you know, to climb Mount Hood or to go run a marathon or whatever it might be. So I, my other personal mantra is always to stay in good enough shape that I never have to turn down a really cool opportunity. Oh, that's great. That's really a great goal to have. Now, Darcy, you spent um, many years, I guess your your background as an athlete took you into uh, a field called, is it biomechanical research? That's right. And in that, in exercise physiology, and so, you know, that's about how the body works. And is that what then took you into Nike Corporation? Absolutely. I had, before Nike, I owned a swim school, I ran a dance company, um, I coached AAU USS Swimming and Gymnastics and worked at several different health clubs. And it was when I was in Connecticut and I was uh, the director of a health club out there, the owner agreed to pay my way back to school and to get my master's. Uh, he knew I really wanted to do that. And so when my son was went to first grade, I did that. And about midway through, we were transferred back to Portland. And during the last year of my master's program, I had the opportunity to um, get connected with Nike. I actually didn't have any biomechanical experience, and the program didn't offer that. So my graduate advisor contacted Nike to see if they would be willing to put together a graduate-level uh, research methods class on bio- biomechanics, and they did. And out of that, they offered me an internship through which I wrote my thesis. And from that, they hired me on contract to do phase two of the research once I graduated, and then phase three. And then they finally figured out that I wasn't going away, so they decided (laughs) to hire me. And that was about 21, 22 years ago. Well, you know, one thing that um, I have heard about Nike is that they really are dedicated to the athlete. And, you know, I think that's interesting because um, to create products for the end user, you know, that's, you know, organizations do that. But it seems to me that Nike was just a little bit different than most organizations that were just creating products for an end user because they were really looking at the whole being, the whole person. Have I got that right? Do I understand that right? Yeah, actually, the two founders of Nike, Bill Bellman and Phil Knight, they were coach and runner and then business partners. Mm-hmm. And their roots at University of Oregon and with some of the uh, most well-known and early, you know, Olympic athletes, Steve Prefontaine in particular, yeah. they created the company by athletes for athletes, and it was as pure a mission, I think, as you can possibly get. And that culture, um, it, it, it exists today. It is so deeply embedded, and it is a company made up, you know, not exclusively, but of a lot of athletes. It really draws that 
type of personality uh, because you're of the sport. Uh, it always brings a certain competitive nature to it, and uh, Nike is a highly competitive, highly innovative, creative culture, and it it is all for the athlete, and the mission statement is actually to bring innovation and inspiration to every athlete in the world. Mm. And there's an asterisk behind athlete. And Bill Bowerman, again, one of the founders, said, if you have a body, you're an athlete. <laughs> well, that that's good. <laughs> that means I'm an athlete, too. Goody. <laughs> that's right. We call ourselves athletes with a small a. <laughs> That's very cool. Well, now your role, your many roles um, in that organization um, took you to not only different parts of the company but at different levels of leadership. Um, If you were to describe some of your learnings as a leader, you know, in terms of what it takes to be a leader, um, what would you say? Boy, that's a... Big question. From a few different perspectives, certainly the culture within Nike mm-hmm. and also entering into the business through the footwear business, it was very heavily male-dominated. Yeah. And I was, my third role at Nike, I became a product developer in the footwear division. And at that time, I was the only female in that role, both at our headquarters and also in any of our liaison offices in Asia where we actually um, would create, commercialize and create the the product. And that was really the first time when I started, I had to deal with uh, the gender bias, the gender barrier, and how to establish myself as a leader without losing my sense of self and establishing respect and confidence in the work that I was doing, even though I was the only female. And it was a great opportunity without being in a formal leadership position hmm. to have to really figure out what is my voice, what is my presence, and how to build on that over time. So I guess to answer your question is, you know, as a leader, and I think you can be a leader no matter where you are in the organization, uh, always be true to yourself and to nev- never lose uh, your sense of self. And if you ever feel like you have to become or do something that is not uh, congruent with your values and your integrity, step away. Mm. You know, it's not worth it. Mm. I think that there is probably a lot of people um, over the last few years that have been in situations where they've had to make a decision um, around that, you know, whether to stay and do something that doesn't feel quite right. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that has to be something that's illegal. It just may not feel quite right to you. Um, or to walk away and, you know, or to speak up and risk that, you know, it, people will say, well, then if you don't want to do it, go away. Or if that person went away, you know, maybe this other organization doesn't want to hire them because they spoke up. So there's a lot of fear that runs through organizations sometimes. What do you think um, keeps people grounded in themselves so that they, they don't get to that place of fear? So they they are willing to do, as you say, you know, step away if you need to. 
Well, I think that's a that's a challenging question because what keeps people grounded, I think that's different for everyone. Yeah. When I talk with others, you know, uh, women just coming out of MBA programs, one of the first questions I ask them is, what is your definition of success? Mm-hmm. Not your parents, not your bosses, not your peers, but what is your definition of success? And you know, to really think about that so that when you get to some of these decision points about how to move forward, you know, to really ask yourself, is it worth it? And what's really at risk here? And that that's always worked for me. Um, sometimes the decision is, well, if I do this, if I follow this path, I'll get the next promotion, I'll get the next mm-hmm. raise, I'll get the next corner office. And if that's important to you, then, you know, that's your criteria for how you'll make that decision. If it's not, and it's more about the work and the difference that they're making, um, and that's their definition of success, Mm. you know, I think it leads you down a different path. Well, you know, it it occurs to me that um, some of what you're talking about is connected to the issue of sustainability, about building sustainability into your own leadership style you know, a a leadership style or a way of being that sustains you as a person and helps to sustain others in their roles in the organization. And so, you know, when we think about sustainability, very often um, it feels external to, you know, kind of an organization or a product or um, a way to operate, but not often referred to, on the internal side of things. Sounds like I, I think you're right. Yes. we. I've begun thinking about it, uh, a shift from a way of doing. Yeah. So, you know, what am I doing here? What am I asking that person to do? To a way of being. Mm. And then it becomes personal. It begins to emanate through every part of your life. And, you know, that those actions become your habits and your character, and and hopefully that begins to um, infect or influence those around you. Hmm. Well, that brings us to um, the whole issue of sustainability that your organization is designed around. And when we come back from this break, I'd like you to tell us about the designs for a sustainable world collective. We'll be right back. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. 
more and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We are speaking with Darcy Winslow today, founder of the Design for a Sustainable World Collective. So, Darcy, tell us, what is this? What is the DSW Collective? Well, it is my own version of working for a better future. Mm. And I got involved in sustainability at Nike back in the mid to late 90s, and literally can track it to the day when my career and how I looked at the world shifted 180 degrees. Yes. So this has been something that I've thought about for a long time, and actually uh, my first sacred passage with John Milton, which was just a little over three years ago was the first inkling of this idea. and Well, now explain to people what a sacred passage is because not everybody knows. Ah, yes. Okay, so sacred passage. uh, I first found out about John Milton and his work by reading the book by Peter Senge, Joe Jaworski, Otto Sharmer, and Betty Sue Flowers called Presence, Mm. Human Purpose in the Field of the Future. And in the book... Joe Jaworski talked about, and it begins on page 55, I've gone back and read it so many times, he talked about his experience with John Milton on a beach in Baja. And I read this, and I called Peter, and I said, Peter, I have to get in touch with John. How do I do this? So one thing led to another, and I got in touch with John and immediately signed up for a sacred passage, which in a very short description... It's a 12-day experience with John Milton as the leader, uh, and we had 10 others in our group. And for the first three days, he prepares you to go out on solo by teaching you practices of Tai Chi and Qigong, Native American principles, and, and different types of meditation. And he does so through stories and through actual practices. And then for seven days, you go on solo. And during that time, um, you are really, you're really alone. (laughs) (laughs) But no music, no journals, no books. Um, I fasted for five days. And by virtue of being in Baja in February, it was 80 degrees. And you very rarely needed clothes, much less shoes or anything. And it's a powerful lesson in what is important, what is noise, 
mm-hmm. and sitting and reflecting and understanding for me, finding what my path, what my journey was in the world. And so that led to a very active uh, kind of winding down of my career at Nike such that I could step away and start this business. And it is based on all the frameworks and practices and experiences that I've had and have learned uh, and the networks that I've been involved with over the past 12, 13 years around sustainability and to really activate that in a circle much broader than Nike. Hmm. So that's John Milton and Designs for a Sustainable World uh, in one. So it really was um, the concept for this collective was born out of your desire to um, make a contribution in this arena, in the world. Absolutely. Nike has come so far from where we were back in the mid-'90s, and it's an amazing journey. Uh, when I look back, and, and a handful of us in the early days really uh, started this work in earnest to move well beyond compliance and what that meant and you know how companies were looking at environment, safety, and health, which is very important, but it's not the world of sustainability that we were looking at. And, again, I just learned so much, and I saw what Nike was doing. Uh, not saw. I was involved with what Nike was doing. And they are on such a trajectory and have become such leaders uh, in the corporate world around what they're doing and the depth and sophistication and the partnerships that have developed around that. And I felt it was time for me to... Uh, take that on the road, so to speak. And the idea behind the collective uh, versus a consulting firm in the traditional sense is to not build a huge company, but to build a collection of uh, partners and relationships and experts such that as opportunities uh, or projects arise, you know, I can tap into you know, a a friend, a cohort of mine in Vermont or California or Canada or the Netherlands and say, we've got the right skills to come together and solve this problem and to do so and then to continue on our individual ways Mm. so that it's very flexible and uh, adaptable to whatever the situation might be. Mm -hmm. Which is a very... um 21st century type of model. I mean, we've been talking for years about how the corporate model is obsolete and doesn't quite work anymore, and yet there wasn't um, there wasn't much of well, what does there what should we be doing instead? You know, um, besides the everybody's a free agent. You know, people kind of got that part, but this idea of a collective and being flexible and coming together based on skill and need and project, it makes a lot of sense. Now, given what's going on in the world of sustainability, and, and you know, it's to me it feels like it's a little baby. You know, the world of sustainability is a little infant, and it's um, beginning to create, get some shape, and it's beginning to get a little personality, but don't quite know what it's going to look like when it grows up yet. Um, you know, what would you like to see happening in this field in, say, the next five or ten years? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right that it still feels like a little uh, entity that needs to be nurtured. Mm-hmm. However, on the flip side, I think it at it is at a, a transition point mm-hmm. where we need to those on the leading edge, and you know it. There are several. There are so many different organizations that are really starting to have this conversation. But just to draw a comparison, back in the mid to late '90s, we were still trying to figure out what does this word mean. Yeah, and we could go back to the Bruntland definition of that. But what does it really mean for an organization to embrace this and to activate that within their company? And you know, it took years to really understand that, and there was a whole group of companies that were uh, working together through the Society for Organizational Learning Sustainability Consortium. And now, 12, 10 to 12 years later, we are at that point again where we're starting to question uh, the, the term sustainability and what that has come to mean to so many organizations. It has been overused, it's been misused, it's been abused, it has in many ways lost meaning. Hmm. So we start to, we've been talking about uh, several different ideas, the transformation of capitalism. Hmm. So you look at, you know, what does it mean to do business uh, in the world? We're looking at what a regenerative or a restorative economy might look like, what a resilient environment might look like, and how we begin to not just look at how we mitigate our impact from an environmental or a social perspective, but how we are quickly going to need to start talking about adaptation strategies as climate change impacts uh, really become real, and then also how we move beyond just mitigation adaptation into a world where we are resilient to these changes mm-hmm. that are going to continue to occur. So I think the word sustainability is starting to shift, even though it is so new and so foreign mm-hmm. to an amazingly large population still. Well, um, what do you think um, the current economic breakdown that is occurring, dismantling, unraveling, whatever you want to call it, um, it seems like this really is an indicator that what you're talking about, the transformation of capitalism, can take place. What do you think is going to happen? What's going to make it more sustainable? I mean, how is it going to look different? The 64, <laughs> I'm not sure what, what how many zeros we're using these days. Trillion dollar question? Wow. I, there is such a sense of urgency yeah. out there based on the science and the data that we're seeing every day. And just this morning, I was on a conference call with uh, Norman Miller, and Chris Somerville, two scientists out of Berkeley who are doing so much of the leading edge climate science and scenario planning as well as bioenergy and, and the associated uh, 
ecosystems mm. in that, so food, water, crops, cattle ranching, etc., and how this is all so complex. And as population increases, we exacerbate the competition between these limited and finite natural resources. So we've seen wars over oil. We'll see and are seeing wars over water. That's probably the most critical one. Mm -hmm. So as we got to talking about that, what's it going to take to shift this around? You know, there's not one lever that we can pull, but technology and innovation will be so critical to that. And I'll just share an example that they mentioned here, the collapse of uh, some of these ecosystems around our ability to grow crops based on, you know, the, the loss of topsoil, uh, the destruction of land through mining, mm -hmm. uh, salinization, population, overgrazing, etc. They are creating new crops that are resistant to drought, that are amenable to very salinated um, uh, land. Mm -hmm. And when I hear examples of this, I become hopeful again. Mm -hmm. um, but it will take all of our efforts and a, a real sense of urgency because what they're finding is these ecosystems are collapsing at a much greater rate as is the rise of uh, te temperature, uh, the carbon emissions in the atmosphere, the melting of the polar ice caps. It's happening so much quicker right. than even the worst-case scenarios that were presented by the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change even a year ago. So what's it going to take? I think it's going to take our best minds in innovation and a change in lifestyles. You know, this work you're doing takes you to some of the most interesting places. And one of the next places you're going is Antarctica. And when we come back from this break, I'd like you to share with us what that's all about. We'll be right back. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. 
the economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity. But being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being on the economy and the markets with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host Doug Cliggett utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The Economy and the Markets, clear thoughts in a complex world. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Darcy Winslow today. Now, Darcy, um, your passion is a sustainable world. And as I said, you get to go to some of the most amazing places you are going to Antarctica soon, I think it's about a week and a half before you go. And just when I think about it, I get excited. You must be really excited. Well, it's it's always been a dream. I have read about Antarctica all my life and never really thought that I would go there. And I think that I actually passed that on to my son. Um, one day when he was 10 years old, out of the blue, he stood up at the dinner table and he said, I am going to save the last great continent of Antarctica. Whoa. <laughs> wow. And so in December, actually on my birthday, I opened my email to an invitation from Vivian Cox, who is the CEO of uh, British Petroleum's Alternative Energy Division, to be a participant and a facilitator for this expedition to Antarctica that does begin in less than two weeks. And it was one of those times when I I read the email and I literally had to get up and walk away from my computer and just think, did I really just read that? So I'm I'm really excited about certainly the trip, but also the mission of the trip. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that. Well, Vivian and some of the other leaders at BP uh, put together the idea of this expedition not for any particular purpose of uh, BP's business, but rather to find through a process of applications um, 50 global youth leaders from undergraduate, graduate, and Ph.D. programs from around the world who have already activated some level of a network around sustainability, climate change, uh, new technology, science in this area, such that we we collectively have an experience, a very visceral and transformative experience around the impacts of climate change and ecosystems and the connectedness of all this and the power of networks such that when they go back into their network, whether it be the university or geographical or ultimately a corporate setting, that they have the tools, they have the resources, they have the leadership voice and capacity to rapidly accelerate 
the, the work in this area mm-hmm. or to introduce it uh, for the first time. And there will be approximately 10 people from BP. We'll have about eight from the academic world. Myself, Peter Senge, and another uh, facilitator, Roger Burton, mm-hmm. we will be leading sessions while we're on land in Ushuaia, Argentina for the first day and a half. Mm. And then when we're actually on the ship for two days going over to the Antarctic Peninsula. And then once we hit the ice, uh, Robert Swan, who was the first person to walk unaided to both poles, will be our polar explorer along with an organization called 2041 uh, and 2 Um, So it's very much a learning journey. It will be very emergent in terms of we don't even know what we're going to experience yet. But it really is about this is what's happening in the world. This is the connectedness that we need to understand. And this is what we individually and collectively can change in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, you know, it's not only the the expertise or the facts around what's happening with the climate. It's not just what, you know, can actually be seen and measured um, with the earth and with the atmosphere, etc., but it's it's more than that. And, and you touch on that earlier when you talked about in your solo time, your connection, your deep connection to nature really inspired a lot in you. And I think when I think about you taking a group of 50 young people to be that connected to that kind of nature, you know, in the Antarctica, um, you know, I mean, how could they leave without being profoundly touched? I'm not sure that's possible. Yeah. You know, I think we can all look back at a point in time when everything shifted for us, the questions that we asked, uh, the depth of the inquiry and the understanding. And I think once you do that, you can never, you can never look back. That certainly happened to me uh, April 14th, 1997, when I first met Bill McDonough and Michael Brongart. Mm-hmm. And it, it shifted everything for me. Um, at that time, that. I was running advanced research and development at Nike, and it was the division where we were making investments and doing research and investing in technology and new processes that wouldn't play out into the product, the business, for anywhere from two to ten years. And once I met them, you know, the question I sat with was, do we really understand all the long-term impacts of the investments that we're making today? Hmm. And the answer was no. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, hopefully this will be that type of transformative experience for them uh, that they they will never forget that they'll continue to learn from because we do plan to have a very robust post expedition program in place for at least a year. Oh, that's fantastic! Well, I can't wait to hear more about that when you all come back and you know keep track of what's. What happens, what evolves, and you know what what emerges from that? You know, as I'm listening to you talk about um, when you were touched when things specifically shifted for you, 
um, and I think about you as a leader in a corporation and that you were empowered to then stand, I call it standing in your leadership. You were empowered to do that, to be that leader with that passion and to do something with it. Uh, you know, you worked for an organization that embraced that. Even though it's a huge multinational corporation, it sounds like you were given the opportunity and empowered to do something with that shift in yourself. Is that true? It is. However, it was not that easy. Uh-huh. In the early days, um, well, I had this epiphany, and also one of my peers at Nike, she and I have grown to have uh, just an incredible relationship, and she came from corporate responsibility. I came from the business, and we came together to work on this, but from two very different perspectives, Mm -hmm. and it was often very combative, uh, our language, and what we were responsible for was very, very different, and so we learned the power of language. We learned the power of partnership, and we learned that no one person, no one organization can do this in isolation. And uh, Sarah Severn is a woman, and she, uh, when I went to my first sacred passage, I asked Sarah to join me in that, and that mm-hmm. further solidified our work uh, together, even though, you know, we're now at two different organizations. Mm-hmm. So there, the early days, it was very difficult, and it's also when I learned the very real difference between being allowed to do something being supported in doing that work, and then true commitment. Mm-hmm. And in the early days, we, when I spoke up and said, hey, I think we need to be uh, more deliberate in our efforts around becoming sustainable in our business, mm-hmm. and if we do, it can't happen through the corporate responsibility group. It's mm-hmm. got to happen within the business. We make product, and... You know, we deal with athletes. We don't create policies. And so that was the first time they said, okay, go figure it out. Mm -hmm. So now I had a job. I had set some 20-year goals. I had no team and no budget (laughs) (laughs) and had to start from there. And so, yes, I was given the opportunity, and it was probably the best thing I'd ever done in my life is to raise my hand and say, I think this needs to happen, and I have no idea how I'm going to make that happen. Well, and that that is commitment. Just like you said, that's, that does demonstrate true commitment. You said, you know, I'm going anyway and um, without knowing the outcome. That is something that um, I think most corporations in general aren't structured for that to happen very much. Um, and... I think a lot of people have quieted that part of themselves down, you know, kind of shut that part of themselves down. Why do you think you were willing to raise your hand? I I think it's in my DNA, and if I can go back to the example of trying a new sport every year, Mm -hmm. it was in part to be comfortable with that unknown. You know, what's it going to feel like to jump out of a plane at 10,000 feet? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but let's go try. Oh, great. And I think that's translated into my life at work as well. Mm -hmm. 
over the course of the years, there are actually six different times when I started something or walked into a new role based on saying, hey, I think this needs to happen, where there was no owner's manual, there was no track record, no history, and to start something from scratch. So I am very comfortable with that, but I I also learned one very important lesson about myself, especially when you are in a formal leadership position. Mm -hmm. And it came several years ago when I started up our women's footwear division, and I pulled all my leaders together, and we went through this exercise, and I'll share it very quickly because it was very powerful for us. We had 50 cards that had one characteristic on each card, so integrity, honesty, mm-hmm. values, family, etc. And you went through the exercise and quickly sorted into what represented you and what didn't, and then to get that down to six and then to rank order those. And we did it over the course of 24 hours, and we shared with others and our spouse or best friends or whatever and got input. And the next day, we came back and we shared that. And out of the 20 leaders in the room, I was the only person that had risk in their top six. Oh, interesting. And I had it as my number one. And so what I realized was I'm very comfortable out there on the edge, not knowing, you know, is there water in the pool 30 meters below? And others are not. So I really had to be aware of that so that I didn't take people into a space where they were extremely uncomfortable. Right, right. Well, you know, that really speaks to how important it is for individuals to have experiences that they can then translate into whatever their everyday work is or, you know, to give them the sense of, I know what this feels like, even though this is a new situation. I can be that in this situation. And very much like the experience on solo out in nature, the experience of connecting to nature or the experience of the importance of the the moment there, how you can take that experience and then translate it into your everyday life or your work life or, um, you know, what it is you want to accomplish in the world. And when we come back after this break, Darcy, I'd like you to share with us how you were able to get some people who you worked with to be able to move in that direction. So we'll be right back. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. 
Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking with Darcy Winslow today, founder of the Design for a Sustainable World Collective. Darcy, you had um, quite a long career at Nike and many roles, and so a lot of opportunity to learn. And you mentioned in our last segment that you were very comfortable with risk. And so when there was opportunity that you saw, you were willing to raise your hand. And I'm wondering how you were able to, or if you were able to, influence people who you wanted to move toward risk or people who you wanted to um, have them take initiative or be willing to step out beyond their comfort zone. How do how are you able to influence them to do that? Well, it's I believe it's situational, uh, but if I can use the example that we've touched on before uh, just a few minutes ago when I raised my hand around starting this sustainable business strategies group yeah. within the actual business. And they said, yes, great, go do it. Um, but I had no team, mm-hmm. and I had no strategy as of yet, but I had just set our 2020 goals around our footwear business, which was zero waste, zero toxics, 100% closed-loop systems, and sustainable growth and consumption. And so I, it was about that time I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, mm-hmm. The Tipping Point, And I gleaned from that two very important lessons that I immediately put into play. One was I needed needed connectors, I needed salesmen, and I needed the data mavens. And I was a team of one, and I felt like I was a connector. So I deliberately went out and sought people who I thought were the mavens and the salespeople to round out my small team in the beginning. And that served me very well. The second was how to get enough momentum within the organization such that we could start moving in this new direction. Mm-hmm. And so Malcolm talks about, you know, you generally need about 20% of that organization. So I sat with that and I thought, okay, Nike had at that time about 22 or 23,000 people. So how am I going to get that many people rallied around this, hey, let's go over here. Right. And I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. But then I went back to something that Bill McDonough said two years prior to this point in time, and he said, design is the first signal of human intention. And design and innovation is so critical, and it's so highly revered at Nike. So I thought, well, what if I got 20% of the design community, and that time it was about 300 people. 
So I went in and identified who I thought, by virtue of working with them, the 20... So thinking about the 20% most influential people that I could get on board, again, going back to design this first signal of human intention, I identified who I thought were the 20% most influential designers and literally started knocking on their door and asking them, uh, could we talk? And by virtue of the conversation, those who were really interested and understood where I was coming from, what was at stake, what was possible, would almost immediately identify themselves and were on board. Uh, those that were a bit on the fence, you know, I would go back and talk to them again. And there were some that just didn't care. They didn't get it. And I think there are those in every organization and it was a deliberate decision not to spend more energy on them and to work with those where we could really gain some traction quickly. So you um, have talked about specific kinds of people that you needed. And you've mentioned before the connectors, the salespeople, and the data mavens. Data mavens. I just love that. Instead of analysts, I'd, be, I'd like to be called a data maven instead of an analyst. That'd be good. <laughs> but you've mentioned that um, you know you were able to identify very quickly um, what the key components could be, and then you were able to bring them together. When you went out and asked and said, "This is what I'm up to. Do you want to play?" Um, was it? I mean, did people really jump? Did people say, yeah, I'm in, I'm in? There were absolutely some who got it because of what they were already doing or the lifestyle that they lived. And we also live in Portland, Oregon, which is, I'm happy to say, the greenest city in the country. Mm -hmm. And so you had this latent urge and need and understanding and it was really going in there and tapping, finding these people, tapping them and saying, hey, now is the time that we can really put this to use. One of the challenges with the design community uh, and what had happened prior to this time is certain parts of the organization uh, would come in and say, you can no longer use this mm. or you can no longer do that. And that comes across as doors closing. Right. And so what we had to do is flip the language and say, yes, we are closing that door, but look at all these doors over here. And to create new language, new design for environmental uh, principles. And this is when their brains would just, they would take over and do the rest. Um, so... In part, it was language. In part, it was just saying, hey, it's okay to do this now. It's okay to talk about this now. And that's when innovation just breaks wide open. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, your role there took you um, into another direction in Nike. And in your last year, you worked with the Nike Foundation. Tell us a little bit about that. We have a few minutes left. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that also came out of my sacred, my first sacred passage experience, and it was literally the fifth day sitting on the beach, fifth day of my solo, 
And it came to me that I needed to get reengaged in the work of sustainability, not as a sideline to running our global women's business, mm. but that that was my path. And so as I thought about that, I realized that one of the areas of sustainability, the social equity or social justice dimension, that I was not as deeply uh, involved in and mm. understood as well as I thought I should if I was going to launch on my own. So I came back from my sabbatical, from my Sacred Passage experience, and went to the president of Nike at that time and said, I think it's time for me to hand over the baton. Uh, somebody else needs to run the women's business, and I would like to get involved in uh, some foundation work for a little bit. And Nike had just started the Nike Foundation, which is focused on adolescent girls and young women in the least developed countries in the world and looking at the causes and conditions of abject poverty and the cycle uh, that they just cannot break out of. And so the president said, okay, but what do you want to do with this? And I said, you know, it would be great to work in the Nike Foundation, but if we can't make that work, I understand, but I know what I need to go do. And so uh, we made that happen, and the last year I did spend in the foundation, and during that time uh, I was responsible for managing the process and the research organizations to create what became the Girls Count Report, which is the first and seminal piece of research on the status of adolescent girls and young women. And in writing that, uh, with the three, well, three research organizations wrote it, we came up with a list of recommendations that global leaders needed to take. And so we presented the work at Davos, at the World Economic Forum, in January of 2008. And it was extremely well-received and started another body of work where we brought it into the population in general and made it accessible and viral and to allow people to understand how they can make a difference in that population. But for me, one of my goals was to find out who the players were, what the issues issues were and where the networks were connected back into the world of business and environment. And what I found was more disconnects and less opportunities mm. to create these connections because, again, you know, as Dana Meadows says in Limits to Growth is everything in the world is connected to everything else. Mm. And it, that, that one year in the foundation really... Uh, an exclamation mark on that. Well, you know, I mean, what you're talking about is about making it practical, you know, how people can connect this to their real life, what can they do to make a difference, and that could be a whole other show. <laughs> um, you know, you, you're an inspiration, Darcy, because you have demonstrated how much can be accomplished when one is willing to pay attention, raise their hand, say, I'm connected to who I am and I know that I can make a difference. And, you know, that, that is inspiring in this world today. 
You know, I know that um, there's much more we could be talking about, but we've come to the end of the show. So um, what I'd like to do is ask you to come back. When you come back from Antarctica, let's arrange a time when you can come back to Leading Conversations and share with our listeners how that was and maybe talk a bit more about some of the work that you're doing and what you're up to. Um, and if people would like to connect and learn more about your work, um, where can we send them? Well, my website will be going live as soon as I get my edits back to the web designer. <laughs> um, but you can access it now and just bookmark it. It's dswcollectives.com. And so it is a work in progress. Uh, hopefully that will be live before I go to Antarctica. And uh, that's how they can get a hold of me, also at Darcy at DSW Collective. Great. That's wonderful. Darcy Winslow, thank you so much for being with us today on Leading Conversations. And all the best in Antarctica. Say hi to um, all the polar bears. <laughs> no polar bears down there. There's no polar bears down there. They're on the North Pole. Oh, that's right. Now, see, yeah. Penguins. I, I continue to learn things every single day. <laughs> <laughs> Say hi to the penguins. <laughs> I will. Thank you All right, so much, Cheryl. Cheryl. Thank you for being with us. And remember, everyone, think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Escobedo. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.